going to be using this mic, Sam. Uh, This morning we're going to be in the book of Acts. Actually, I'm going to be looking at several passages of Scripture uh, today. And uh, we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 8. And of course, if you are ready with your Bible, you can also be turning to uh, Titus chapter 1, verse 16, and then also Second uh, Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, and then Matthew chapter 7, verse 13 and 14. Those are just some verses in the beginning I want to use. But I'm telling my message today almost a Christian. Let's pray. Lord, this morning, I pray that you would use your word to help us examine ourselves, to make sure that we are in the faith, that we have a relationship with you, Father, through Christ we have truly repented toward the Father and believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray, Lord, that you would use the word of God to bring conviction, to bring clarity, and to help us assuredly to know where we stand with you. So, Lord, we can live for you, and then we can die for you, that we can die in Christ. And so, Lord, bless our time this morning as we look at the word in Christ's name. Amen. Now, growing in the knowledge of the scriptures and then setting them up as a measuring rod for what is honoring, what is godly, what is true in the Christian life and in the contemporary church, That's the standard that we use to diagnose the spiritual condition, not only of our own lives, but of the church itself. If one is discerning and honest, one must conclude that there are things wrong today in the church. The 21st century church has slipped away from biblical Christianity and has been conditioned actually to accept carnality and worldliness and compromise as a part of the normal Christian experience. Shallowness and flippancy has characterized today's Christianity. And in the end, it's producing a watered-down gospel of cheap grace and shallow conversions, even resulting in spurious conversions. So people who profess to know Christ are indifferent and lackadaisical about spiritual matters, and that's not a good thing. That is not what the church is about. People who profess to know Christ, but there's no evidence in their life that they know him. Something like what is recorded in Titus chapter 1 and verse number 16. If you have turned there, it says they profess to know God. Titus 1 verse 16. They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny him, being detestable and disobedient 
and worthless for any good deed. From time to time, we need to take the scriptures and use them to do some self-evaluation for this reason, so it can uncover subtle forms of hypocrisy that have has been lurking in our hearts and get rid of those things. The Apostle Paul proclaimed these words to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse number 5, where he said, test yourself, test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves, or do you not recognize that this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test? So in these epistles, we see that the apostles and the Lord himself is very concerned where people are at spiritually. That if they are saying they're a Christian, but really sometimes it ends up that they're almost a Christian. It was Paul who was preaching before King Agrippa, and he was laying out his testimony, as the people are going to do when they get baptized, about what the great things God has been doing in their heart. And Paul was preaching to Agrippa, and Paul said to Agrippa, you believe the prophets, don't you? And then King Agrippa responded to Paul uh, and said this, in a short while, you will persuade me to be a Christian. But he wasn't a Christian, and he knew that. It's better to know you're not a Christian than to think you are a Christian and you're not. So may this word this morning awaken the sleepy. May it awaken the reckless professor that so much abounds in the age in which we live. Eternal life was never to be had at so cheap a rate as to think someone who just named the name of Jesus and say they're a Christian by their own definition, not a biblical definition, and go on to live their life just any old way they choose to. If that was the case, then the Lord wouldn't have never told us in Matthew chapter 7, in verse number 13, enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. And then in verse 14, for the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. Or the Apostle Paul would have never given us a strong injunction from second, uh, excuse me, the Apostle Peter from Second Peter when he said this, Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about the calling and choosing of you or to make certain about your own election. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. The things that add to your faith, he's mentioning in that passage. In other words, it is no easy thing to be saved. Now, these are very probing, convicting, and sobering passages of Scripture. I admit that. 
they have caused me to examine myself. But brethren, we do need to ponder them. Because these scriptures warn us that there is a faith in Christ that does not save. The Bible teaches that there is such a thing as non-saving faith, and it's a warning to us. And of course, the example that I want to look at is Acts chapter 8. So why don't you take your Bibles and turn there in Acts chapter 8, and let's see what's going on here. And I want you to notice the questionable things about before he made a profession, this man, Simon, and then after he made a profession. First, let's look at verse number 12 and 13. It says, But when they believed Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, men and women alike. Verse 13 of Acts chapter 8, even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued on with Philip as he observed signs and great miracles taking place. He was constantly amazed. So here's this man recorded in scripture named Simon Magus. All right, Simon here. But I want you to notice and go back up to verse number nine that there are certain fraudulent things about what was going on with his profession of faith. And I'm calling it just a profession of faith. For in verse number 9, notice what it says. There was a, his motive was actually fraudulent. It's in verse number 9, it says of Acts 8. Now, there was a man named Simon who formerly was practicing magic in the city, astonishing the people of Samaria, claiming to be someone great. So he had a, somewhat of a background, not that the Lord could not save someone out of that. He does, and he has, and he will. But here, it seems like the word of God is being recorded for us to know that he didn't really give those things up. A second thing, in verse number 10 and 11, if you notice, his power was fraudulent. It says in verse 10, and they all from Smallest to greatest were giving attention to him, saying, This man is what is called the great power of God. And they were giving him attention because he had for a long time astonished them with his magic arts. So he had a, he had a power before conversion that he would go into a crowd of people and he would astonish them by his abilities, by his powers. And then I want you to notice that he finally had a fraudulent belief and that means that his baptism was also fraudulent. In verse number 13, as I have read there in Acts 8, it says, Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip as he observed signs and great miracles taking place, and he was constantly amazed. And then look at verse number 18. Here is where the problem comes in. It says, Now when Simon saw the Spirit was bestowed through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money. In verse number 19, saying, Give this authority to me as well. 
so that everyone on whom I may lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. In verse number 20, the apostle Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. See, you have no part or portion in this matter for your heart is not right with God. So Peter diagnoses his real spiritual condition. That's after he made a profession of faith and was baptized. His belief was not genuine. Why? Because he didn't really want Christ. What he really wanted, what he really wanted is he wanted power. That's what he wanted. He didn't want Christ. So what happens here in the word of God is that because they, he did this, then he, they were not right. He was not right with God. And because he was not right with God, that means uh, Peter actually used the natural meaning of Peter's language is that Simon was on the road to destruction. Is a warning and almost a curse on him in verse number 22. There's still room for repentance, for it says, therefore, repent of the wickedness of, your, of yours and pray the Lord that if possible, the intention of your heart may be forgiven you. In verse 23, for I see that you are in a gall of bitterness and in the bondage of iniquity. He was never set free from the bondage of his sin, and he remained in it. So Simon is actually thoroughly frightened by Peter's words, but shows no sign of personal repentance or change of heart. He wants to escape the penalty of his sin and hopes that Peter can avert it. So the word of God says, But Simon answered and said, Pray to the Lord for, you, for me yourselves, so that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. So he didn't really want Christ. He didn't want true salvation. He wanted some power that the apostle Paul, or Peter, and the apostles had, uh, and added to what he was already doing with the power that he already had doing his magical arts. So Peter clearly diagnosed his case. He was an unconverted man in spite of his profession of faith and baptism. He had a classic case of non-saving faith, and there's no evidence that his life was ever changed. So you see, a person may seem to have done everything required to believe, yet be almost a Christian. That's frightening. But it's in Scripture, and it's there for us to know that salvation and being a Christian is a very serious matter. Tremendously serious matter. In fact, there's five important things to remember when considering the weightiness of this subject. And I'm going to bring those out from other passages of Scripture just for us to think about. And here's the first one. To always take heed 
take heed of resting in just a form of godliness. For Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.5, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied the power, avoid such men as these. Now, to think that lifeless formality can confer grace is simply just not true. To think that you can have one foot in the church and one foot out and be safe is not safe at all. To think that you can bow your knee in a few prayers and that doing that somehow you're safe, well, you're not safe at all. To think that once in a while you can take the Lord's table and that is enough for heaven or to think your salvation is sure yet in your heart is a hell of sin. In your life is filthy conversations and actions. In your mind dwells nothing but sensuality and unsanctified imaginations. Do you think that's what God saves us to? You think that Christ suffered and died so that you can live in the pleasure of your sins without conviction of those sins and to have a sincere desire to have those sins put off you and forgiven and cleansed by the Lord and to finally put those sins to death and then replace those sins with righteous living. See, Christ saves us so we're just not stuck in a form of godliness, in some, some, some kind of formal structure of religion. He doesn't want us to live there. He wants to live with real, us to live with real life, with the Spirit of God surging through us, that there's transformation and change from our minds down to our feet, through our hands. Everything about us is being changed because of what Christ has done. So if you do depend on a formal, a form of godliness, and your life has no power, then there's no salvation. A second thing is this, to labor to see an outworking of the power of godliness. Look in your life and see what's going on in your life. It, it, was, it was in the the epistle of Hebrews in chapter 12 and verse 14, where the writer of Hebrews says, pursue peace with all men and holiness or sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. That true holiness of life is the only excellent life. It is the life of saints on earth and angels in heaven. Holiness is the life of God in himself. So what are we to do? We are to labor to see that holiness being worked out in our life. And how is it, why do we need holiness? Because we need holiness for our whole well-being. It says in Hebrews, it's, it's the Lord who disciplines us so we can share in his holiness. That, that's his goal. He does correct us. He does drive out sin but only in order that we may be more truly the children of God. 
be sure of this, he would have you to be holy. That's why he saved us. He saved us in Christ Jesus unto holiness. For it says in Thessalonians that God has not called us to impurity, impurity, but holiness. That holiness is a special term that points to the holy character of God. The holiness which is essential in God's attributes. That God's nature demands holiness in the life of a Christian. So we are called to and must earnestly strive for personal, practical holiness. This means believers are to be set apart from evil but separated to God consecrated entirely given over to the service of God that's where it's going to be and holiness is necessary also for effective service where it says in Timothy 2 Timothy 2:21 therefore if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable he is a vessel for honor honorable used to uh, set apart as holy useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work that God uses holy vessels in his service. He doesn't use vessels that have a profession of faith and want all the stuff that goes with being right with God, and yet they want to live their own life their own way. Uh, It just doesn't go together. God wants people who are holy, who are set apart. Matter of fact, that's what real conversion does. And holiness is also necessary for assurance of salvation. How do I know if I'm saved? How can I live a Christian life with boldness if I don't know that I'm right with God? That if I don't know my sins are forgiven? If I don't know that in this instant, if I were to die, that I would be with the Lord? See, so holiness is really given to us for our own assurance of salvation, where he says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, it tells us in the word of God that the only safe evidence that we, uh, that we are in Christ is a holy life, that if you know nothing of holiness, you shouldn't flatter yourselves that you're a Christian. So the bottom line is that it is not those who profess to know Christ who will enter heaven but those who, whose lives are holy, because God's making them holy. In fact, you, you really can't see the Lord without holiness, where it tells us in Hebrews, for holiness, without holiness, you will not see the Lord. So set-apart Christians are to reflect the attitudes and behaviors consistent with their relationship with God in Christ. So keep pursuing a life that is more and more set apart to God. That's the admonition. Holiness is going to give me assurance that I'm a believer. And you're a believer. I think another thing would be this, to always look upon things to come as the greatest realities. Now, what do I mean by that? I mean that most people, judge reality the reality of things based on their visibility or their proximity proximity to our senses we see we believe we touch we believe yet the believer is the one who has 
been growing in their faith in what God has said and in his word they have been growing and in this, their understanding of his word. And so therefore they're beginning to grapple with eternal realities that are not no, so keen to the senses. They're not near to our visibility or our proximity. See, to believers... In other words, eternity is no dream, even though I cannot touch eternity. I cannot necessarily see eternity. But the Bible says that when I believe in Jesus Christ, I have eternal life. So eternity now becomes a subject and a ground of thinking about something that I cannot necessarily get my arms around. I cannot necessarily put my eyes upon. But for the believer, eternity is no dream. Hell is a real place where the worm never dies and the fire's never quenched. Heaven is the greatest reality imaginable to the believer. That's what we look forward to because we know what's there. We haven't made it up in our own mind. It's real. Yes, these are spiritual and they're out of the reach of the senses, yet they are real and within the view of faith. That's why the Lord gives us faith. And what is biblical faith? Biblical faith accepts God's word. In Hebrews 11:1, 1, for now faith is the assurance or it is the substance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. That's what faith is. That I have a conviction about things I don't even see. I can't perceive with some of my senses, but with my soul I can. Because the word of God has come to me. And the word of God has come to you, and I begin to learn the essence of what biblical faith is. That biblical faith is not a substanceless faith. It is actually a faith that has substantial reality. And that reality is based on what God has said. Because don't we live in a spoken world? God spoke and the world existed. We live in a spoken world. I can't explain that. Scientists have been searching and researching and going over things, and they've come up with their own theories. But when you look at the Word of God, the Word of God says God spoke and it was. That our Creator called things into existence and it happened. I also don't have a uh, hope so faith. That's not a biblical faith. The Bible says in the word of God, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. So when hope is used as a verb, hope and faith are virtually synonymous. As a noun, hope refers directly to the promises of God. God promises us eternal life through Jesus Christ to those who repent and believe. Right? In other words, God offers us hope. That's the noun form. And we can have hope. That's the verb form. In him and his guarantees, we can believe him with confidence. So the hope here is not, I hope so, or I hope it happens. 
That's just wishful lo uh, longing. A biblical hope looks forward with utter conviction and expectancy. It is not a hope mingled with uncertainty and doubt. Those who live in doubt, the opposite of faith, are essentially denying that the hope God gives is actually true. I like what Charles Spurgeon said many years ago. He said this, and I quote, I would recommend you either believe God up to the hilt or else not believe at all. Believe this book of God, every letter of it, or else reject it. There is no logical standing place between the two. Be satisfied with nothing less than a faith that swims in the depths of divine revelation, a faith that paddles about the edge of the water is but a poor faith at best. It is a little better than a dry land faith, and it is not good for much, end quote. Also, a biblical faith is not a faith that focuses on the seen. What does it say? The conviction of things not seen in Hebrews 11. That means there's an inward result of proving something. He's talking about here an inward conviction that comes to us by the word of God, that we know these things are true because God said them, and yet we cannot see them. But we can trust God's word. So faith does not focus on the seen things of the world, but rather looks to the unseen promises of God. That's our hope. And we live accordingly. That hope is the result of faith. We have a conviction in regard to the unseen, and that conviction is faith in its essence, that they exist in spite of not seeing them. So we're certain that the unseen things as if we saw them. We are certain that even though we don't see them, the Bible promises us a resurrection from the dead. Have I ever seen anybody resurrected? No, have you? No, but I know Christ was, and I know he's seated at the right hand of the Father, and I know he is the first fruits of the resurrection, and if he is the first fruits and we're part of his crop, we're going to get resurrected, and we're going to get new bodies. See, that's faith. Faith has to hold on to that, even though it does not see it and grasp it with all the senses. There's going to be a new heaven and earth, new earth someday, it tells us in Revelation, right? Is that going to happen or is it not going to happen? And if it's going to happen, you who are believers will be there. You will be there. I am holding on to that by faith because I can trust in God's word. So see, biblical faith is not a blind leap in the dark. It is immersed in the nature and the character of God, in objective truth, in historical reality. That's what it is. It is. And also, biblical faith recognizes not only that it accepts the word of God, but it recognizes the power of God to do these things. For, for God to call something out of nothing into existence takes power. 
For God to remember in Ephesians to raise you spiritually from the dead, put his spirit in you, takes the resurrection power to save you and rescue you from the clutches of Satan. So biblical faith recognizes the power of God. It says this in Hebrews 11.3, By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. What is seen was not made out of things which are visible. So biblical faith has a spiritual perception that the universe can be seen, but its origins cannot be seen. That the believer knows what the origin of the universe is, and that's God himself. For it says God's word is an invisible power that produces visible results. I I always tell people uh, that I really am a firm believer in the Big Bang Theory. I wait for their puzzled look, and then I says, God spoke and bang. The universe, it came into being, produced visible results of which I can see now. And the word of God says that heaven and earth is going to pass away. There's going to be a new heaven and earth. You know what? I can bank on that because of what God's done here. I can go outside, and what do I see outside? I see the power of God's creative activity and work, right? I see that. I cannot deny that. Somebody who claims they're an atheist, well, the Bible does talk about them. It says the fool has said in their heart there's no God. So the Bible calls atheists fools because they, they can't even walk outside and see that God's done all this. He's created all this. So faith, because it is based on the character of God, the living God, the invisible God, the God who cannot lie. The scripture speaks of the formation of the universe at God's command. So the essence of biblical faith, it is a faith that rests solely on the word of God. It is a faith that rests entirely on the character of God. It is a faith that recognizes God's power to bring to pass all that he has promised, and faith is given to us so we can hold those promises until they become reality. And they will become reality. Just as this world is real, everything God promises will become reality. So we are growing in our faith. So biblical faith is grounded in what we can't see, but we, what we know is true. So then faith lays hold of what is promised and therefore hoped for as something real and solid, though it is yet unseen. See, you, you may know by faith what we can't see with the eye. So faith is trust in the unseen but it is not trust in the unknown biblical faith is a faith that is absolutely certain that what it believes is true and what it expects or hopes will come to pass so faith is the ultimate assurance and the ultimate evidence that things not seen are realities. 
quick passage of scripture you can turn to. Look at 2 Corinthians 4.18. It says, while, 2 Corinthians 4.18, while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. You get that? That the things that we cannot see are the eternal things. Those are the things that last forever. In other words, why live for just the temporal stuff? Why not live for God and now be eternal? Because that's where we're all heading. That's where we're all heading. So that means there's a fourth thing that we need to consider. Place a high value on your soul. It says in Matthew, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? What will a man give in exchange for his soul? You know, what we lightly prize, we easily part with or give away. And unfortunately, people sell their souls far too cheaply. They live for pleasures. They live for themselves. They live for what they can get, not what they can give. So people sell their souls for cheap, short-lived pleasures because they don't give due consideration to the precious value of their own soul. That people may sell their soul at a very cheap rate, and often it falls within the proximity of two particular appetites given to us in Hebrews the appetite of sensual passions, sensual passions. I, I need to fulfill my sensual passions. Where the word of God tells us in Hebrews 12, 16, see to it that there be no immoral person among you. Of course, he was speaking here about Esau, that Esau had taken foreign women to be wives against uh, the desires of his parents, and so therefore his parents considered him to be immoral, which is synonymous with fornication in that case. And also physical appetites. That, or it says in, in Hebrews, or a godless person like Esau who sold his own birthright for a single meal. In other words, he just sold his soul for one meal. He sold his birthright. That means his thoughts, his aims, his pleasures were only earthbound, in which he only regarded his, the fleeting, unprofitable gratification of his flesh over the privileges of having a birthright and a spiritual blessing from God, to be the head of his family, to have property rights, to, to have an inheritance that Abraham had passed on to him, and then finally to be in the bloodline of the Messiah. Gave it all up, one meal. So what's on his mind? Food, drink, sports, sleep. Sounds like a macho man of today, sitting in his man cave. 
drinking his adult beverage and smoking his favorite whatever. So for a single meal, he threw away his ancestral ship of the Messiah and everything that went with that great privilege. We do that. People do that. Young people do it all the time. They give in to the pressure of the culture that says, listen, live with your boyfriend. You know, live the way you want. You know, marriage is so dumbed down today, it means nothing in, in the culture. And yet God says the only place a marriage bed is honorable is, is the only place a sexual relationship is honorable is in the marriage. Because God designed it like that. And when you do it like that, God actually honors it. And it's not a Christian ordinance marriage. Marriage is a creation ordinance. In fact, Esau later on realized what he did and went back and tried to repent. And the Bible says, for you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no place for repentance, though he sought it with tears. Too late. It was too late for him. And Esau became an embittered man. So instead, we ought to consider our soul. Our soul is the most precious and invaluable jewel in the world. It is the most beautiful piece of God's workmanship in the whole of creation. We are the ones who bear the image of God, which was bought with the blood of Christ for those who've come to know Jesus. We are the ones who bear his image. So we ought to set a high value upon our soul. Let's make sure that we're not over-evaluing other things and undervaluing our soul. As if the life and salvation of our souls were not worthwhile. There's one last thing that I want to mention, and it's this. That we need to consider when we consider our own salvation and our stance with God is that we need to meditate often on the suddenness and strictness of the day of judgment. It says in Hebrews, and inasmuch as it is pointed once for men to die, then after this comes what? Judgment, right? So what you and, he, you and I need to think about is what awaits us at our death. Because the second part of Hebrews tells us there's a leveler greater than physical death. And what is that? It says, after this comes judgment. It will be as the scripture records it. God's verdict will be acquittal for those who know Christ. And it will mean heaven. God's verdict will be condemnation to those who don't know Christ. And it will mean hell. For those who have been bought by the blood of Christ, the throne of judgment has really been changed to the throne of mercy. For those who have not and do not come to Christ, after they die are ushered into the throne of judgment. 
So there, there will be a judgment also for believers, the Bible says. Not for our sins, but it will be a judgment for our works. It will be judgment for how we lived for Christ. God's the impartial judge, and he will require an account at our hands. Uh, the use of all our gifts and our talents, everything that he's entrusted to us, we will give an account for. It says in 2 Corinthians, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may give recompense for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether it good or bad. So we must give an account for our time. How have we spent it? On what have we spent it? On who have we spent it? We must give an account for our work. Have we done it with all our might to the glory of God? We must give account for our money and our possessions. How have we used them? What have we used them for? Did we work with our hands to give? Were we generous and showed the kindness of God? We must give an account for our worship. Who or what? Have we grown in our, fleck, our affections toward? Did we worship in spirit and in truth? Did we worship the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? Did we worship as the word of God communicates to us? See, we must give an account also of our strength. Who or what have we given our strength to? We must give an account for mercy and afflictions. How have we responded to these things in order for them to improve us, and for, in order for them to make us holy, in order for them to make us godly? We must give an account for our relationships. How have we discharged our duties toward others? We must give an account for our service. Have we used our gifts and talents to build up the body of Christ? And, and the list can go on. But see, it's the seriousness of the Christian life. It's the seriousness of making sure your profession is real, backed up by evidence that God has been working in your life. So if we may judge a tree by its fruits and the principle by practice, the hearts of most people are filled with or who live as if God were not to be served, nor Christ to be sought, nor lust to be mortified, nor self to be denied, nor scripture to be believed, nor the judgment day to be minded, nor hell to be feared, nor heaven to be destined, nor the soul to be valued. But instead, some live for sensuality, to work all in cleanness with greediness, living without God in the world. In fact, I'm going to get to a passage of scripture in Ephesians that says that. And they, it says, having become callous and given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. And then he says this, but you did not learn Christ in that way. 
Everywhere in Scripture you have this kind of language going on. Always calling us back to look at ourselves, to examine ourselves, to make sure that we're in the faith, to keep us on the narrow road, to keep us walking in holiness. You know, I ran across the story of a, a pastor who, um, right here in New Jersey, actually, who wanted to awaken his congregation to the realities of sin and death and hell and judgment and eternity and to their own conversion. And so this pastor from New Jersey announced an unknown funeral. The congregation came not knowing whose funeral it was. The preacher preached. And as sometimes they do, the people began to get stirred up and there was a lot of weeping. Then the preacher continued, it is sad that the man in this casket is so sinful and so corrupt that he is going to hell. This is a most wicked person. The minister had preached and preached before this, but no one believed him. And so he thought many of his people were not saved and heading for a place that he didn't want them to go. So he closed his sermon saying, and now it's time to view the corpse. He moved the flowers aside and had two of his deacons help him open the casket. One by one, they filed by it. And to their utter surprise, there was nobody in the casket. But he had the entire bottom of the casket filled with a big mirror. And you know what people did in their curiosity. Everyone looked and saw himself in the casket. I thought that was pretty unique. I'm not going to do that. <laughs> but the point I'm making today is really simple. Don't be someone who's almost a Christian. Make sure you are. And the way you make sure you are is that you come to Jesus Christ in repentance and faith. Because it is a matter of belief. It's a matter of obeying the message concerning our Lord Jesus Christ. That he is the son of God. That he is the only way of salvation. That God sent Jesus to the cross. That God put all our sins on him and punished Jesus in the place of of all those who would believe in him. So, so, so do you believe that? See, have you received the free offer of eternal salvation? And it is free. Have you obeyed the gospel? I pray that the Holy Spirit may really whisper in your heart, yield to Jesus because Jesus invites you to come. Come right now if you've never come. Repent of your unbelief and ask Jesus to rescue you from sin's condemnation and receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And really, when you think about that, stop the foolish labor of trying to establish your own righteousness. You have none. I have none. I have nothing to offer God for salvation. Can't do anything to save myself. Instead, 
Submit yourself to the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Get his righteousness. His righteousness will get you into, uh, make you right with the Father. And really stop offering a price for eternal life like Simon tried to pay. Instead, come and receive life as a free gift from your God as he intended. So you're not called upon to earn life, but to receive it. And then stop leaning upon your pride. Give it up. Fling yourself on the mercy of God for pardoning grace. That's the only way any, any one of us can be saved. See, the resurrected and living Christ wants to give eternal life freely and without cost. That's what he wants to do. That's why he came. So what much to do if you don't know Christ and would like to know him and make sure that you're not an almost Christian but are a Christian? Well, repent of your sins. Repent and believe the gospel. Repentance is a really conscious recognition that you are a sinner and you are turning to a Savior, Jesus Christ, who can forgive your sin and make you right with God and reconcile you back to himself. And so you become switch from being an enemy of God to a friend of God. And then believe in Jesus Christ. Believe. Believe in him alone for salvation. Repentance towards the Father and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That true saving faith always responds in obedience. Always responds in obedience. And receive the free gift of eternal life offered in Jesus Christ. So brethren, can you be enthusiastic and say yes to the fact that you came to believe in Jesus Christ or maybe you're coming to believe in Jesus Christ or maybe today you're going to believe in Jesus Christ and if you have that the blessed effects of your salvation continues to be evident in your present life it's not just a mindless profession it's a real, genuine receiving of the only one who could save you. And that you would say today that I am fully certain of my salvation. Based on God's word and based on what he's doing in my heart right now. That's the way to live. If you are there, live with gusto. Live with boldness. Go for it all for Christ. And believe me, you won't regret one second and one moment. And the faith that you have been building up as you understand the character of God will all become a reality someday. It will be all become a reality. Because God cannot lie to us. Amen? Those who are being baptized, you're dismissed in the back. Get, get ready. Greg's going to come up and, and play a few songs, but thank you for listening this morning. And as I said in the message, if you don't know Christ but would like to know Christ as your Lord and Savior, please pull me aside, talk with me, talk with Dwayne, talk with Greg up here, talk with somebody in our church, and, and let them talk with Paul over here, any, anybody uh, who can give, uh, explain the gospel to you, and so you can not be an almost Christian, but actually a Christian.